0: told you I wanted to call your attention to that word murder in the first verse it's really interesting to consider that the first five books of the bible were written by a man who killed another man with his hands Moses was guilty of murder and he wrote five of the books of the old testament the first five and then you've got David, who was the most renowned king of Israel, who also wrote many of the Psalms, who was a man guilty of murder. Now, David didn't go out and do it with his own hands, but David was a king who had the power to plot the murder of another man and command others to do it. At the heart of it, the death of Uriah the Hittite was the guilt of King David. And then Saul was a man who was guilty of murder. And just like David, there's no record that Saul himself personally put his hands on anybody and killed them. But he was at the death of the first martyr. And the Bible tells us he held the coats of those that were killing Stephen. And so here's Saul who has the power to have a man killed taking the coats of those whom are going to kill the man and holding them while they stand and kill the first martyr. And he was breathing threats and more murder. This same man wrote half or more of the New Testament. We have three writers of this book guilty of murder. And it teaches us something about the grace of God. But there is not anybody that God cannot forgive. There is not anybody that God cannot save. There is not anybody that God's grace cannot make right what was wrong. And God can use even the most broken and sinful of people when they repent and get their hearts right with God. Saul, when you read verse chapter 9, you see the name Saul. And uh, you might not know this, but Saul is the same man as the Apostle Paul. His life was so radically different that he took on a new name so that he would be associated with this new person. And so when you hear the word Paul, or the name Paul and the name Saul, it's actually the same man. And so for the sake of this sermon, I'm going to use the word Paul, even though his name is still not recorded that yet, when we see the story in Acts chapter 9. So we've read this morning one of the most miraculous stories of grace transforming a man than probably any other story in the Bible. If you're going to just take 22 verses and in those 22 verses find a description of what grace is, I don't know that there's a better section in the Bible than the one that we just read. And we want to examine it this morning, but before I get back to the text, there's one other thing I want to share in my introduction this morning. What I'm about to tell you is honestly a very, very important piece of understanding real spiritual warfare. So one of the tactics that the enemy uses is to steal the meaning of words. In the theological realm, sometimes we will call it hijacking a language. And so there's a word that means something, and then the enemy will come and take this word and hijack it, and then try to use the wrong meaning of the word to manipulate and influence behavior. I'm going to give you some examples. So, for example, we will take the the innocent murder of a helpless child in the womb, and we will call it women's health care. Because women's health care sounds like a good thing. Anybody that's not for women's health care must be a monster. And so we take a term and we misapply it. The enemy hijacks that term. It even becomes a slogan, or we might say women's choice. I mean, what kind of a monster, what kind of a chauvinistic pig doesn't think that women should have a choice? Who wants to be said, you're of that camp, that you think women shouldn't have a choice? Well, the choice to do what? If we get down to what it really is, the answer is a choice to murder your own children if you do not want them. We don't want to say that. So, instead of being honest about what the choice is about, we just stop with women's choice. Another great example is the word love. Love is a good thing. None of us want to be accused of hating somebody. None of us want to be accused of not being loving And so the enemy will hijack that word, and now all of a sudden in our culture to love somebody means to accept and agree with whatever they feel. And so if you feel something, if I really love you, I'm responsible to validate that feeling. And so what's tr- your truth and your truth and your truth and your truth, the whole thing is love means that whatever your truth is, is that I embrace that for you and that I celebrate that with you. But that's not really love at all. That's ridiculous. Just because you believe something that's delusional or because you believe a fantasy, there's no, there's no loving part of me that embraces that fantasy if I know it's a fantasy, And yet, this is what love means. Love in our culture means that that there are people literally teaching this. It sounds utterly absurd, but this is literally happening right now. And the reason I'm saying these things is because we must understand one of the ways the enemy fights us, brothers and sisters. Love in this culture to many, not just some small, tiny little group, many. It now means that if an 8-year-old child... Is confused about their gender, that the loving thing to do is put them under the knife, castrate their genitals, and let them become something else. That's loving. It's not, it's nonsense. It's equally as nonsense as taking an eight year old child who thinks he's a bird and throwing him off of a building because we're loving him and embracing what he believes. That's not loving. It's evil, actually. But as you can see, the word love has been hijacked. One of the things that's very important is that we learn how to fight back against that, that we recapture the meaning of words, and that we're willing to stand up and say the hard thing. I don't like standing up and saying what I just said, but you listen to me, brothers and sisters. Every word I just said is true. It's as true as true can possibly be. Now, I want to talk about the word grace. You see, grace is a word that's been hijacked. And it's been hijacked in the church. When most people, most, hear the word grace, what they believe it ultimately means is that you can live any way you want to live and God's grace is just going to forgive you. That you can sin without consequence. That you can live like the devil and still go to heaven. That's what grace means. You'll see people that live in sin, they're unashamed of it, drink like sailors, cuss like fish, sin like all the other sinners out there, but they're going to tell you by golly, they're saved. You know why? Because the grace of God covers their sins. That is a devilish, demonic, evil view of grace. And if you've ever been duped into using that terminology to explain grace to somebody, you need to wake up and learn the truth about grace. Because that isn't grace. And I'm going to show you that this morning, that God's grace is not that. The word grace has all too often been hijacked in our culture. And so when we say grace, you know, we're covered by grace, we end up, there's this great confusion about what that means. We think that the grace of God, what it really means is that it gives us the power to sin without consequence. That is nonsense. It's utter nonsense. Nowhere does the Bible ever teach us That grace gives us the power to sin. That grace, when it's applied by God, somehow makes it easier to sin. That grace is supposed to somehow get us to this place where we're no longer convicted of sin because we don't need to be convicted of sin because why be convicted of something that grace covers? And so the term grace, it's been hijacked. This morning, I want us to look at what grace really is by examining one of the passages, arguably the greatest passage ever recorded, of one man's life being changed by grace. And what we're going to see is that grace is this power, it is this, it, grace is active, it's not passive. That grace does something. It was Charles Spurgeon who said these words, and Charles Spurgeon was any, if there was ever anybody that understood grace, preached on grace, uh, you know, I'm not even a big fan of Calvinism, but Charles uh, Spurgeon was as Calvinist as they come. If there was ever anybody that believed in once saved, always saved, grace, 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 it was Charles Spurgeon. And this is what Charles Spurgeon said about grace. A grace that cannot change you is certainly not powerful enough to save your soul from hell. That was Spurgeon's take on grace, that if God's grace is so weak, it can't even change your behavior, why do you think it's powerful enough to wash away your sins and bring you into right standing with God? So this morning, we're going to look at what grace does, and I want you to consider this morning, when I think about what grace does, I'm not really dealing with uh, collectively, right? I'm dealing with individually this morning. So I'm not talking about what does God's grace do to all of us collectively this morning, but more specifically, what did God's grace do to this individual man? What will God's grace do to you as a man? What will God's grace do to you individually As a woman, when God's grace is given to you. So four actions this morning that grace does for each of us. Number one, grace will confront you. Grace will confront you. It's the opposite of what we often think of grace. The very first thing that happens with Paul, Paul is on his way to Damascus, and he's on his way there literally to arrest Christians and bring them back to mock trials in Jerusalem. That's where he's headed. Now, I want you to consider something about the great apostle Paul. He was a Jew who had much authority. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees. And he had influence with the chief priests, like the highest leaders of the Jewish people. But the chief priests had no authority in Rome. So the chief priests couldn't say, okay, Saul, go arrest those Christians. They had to have the approval of Rome. And so the Jewish leaders, just as was the case with Jesus' crucifixion, They work in tandem with the Roman government, and Paul had the authority of both of these traveling with him. So in Paul's convoy, he's got some other high-level religious ranking leaders with him, and he has Roman soldiers so that when he shows up at your door, he has Roman soldiers with weaponry and the legal right to arrest you and bring you back to Jerusalem. This is Paul traveling on the road to Damascus. He's a man with authority, and he's an evil, wicked man. Note that Jesus literally knocks the man to the ground. That's what it says. The light shone, and Paul fell to the ground. It's most likely, it would make most sense, that he was actually riding on a horse. Have you ever heard the term, get knocked off your high horse? Like that? literally happened to Paul. And, and Paul, Paul he, he immediately can't see, and he says, Lord, who are you? And Jesus answers, I'm the one you're persecuting. I want you to notice, Jesus didn't ride up alongside Paul on a little horse and have a friendly conversation over the next three days Hey Saul, man, you're really a great guy. You know, deep down inside, I'm sure you probably question some of the stuff you're doing. These aren't bad people you're arresting, Saul. You know, honestly, if uh, if you thought about it and you, you came to my side, you're going to be like even more blessed than you are over there, man. Jesus didn't come at the uh, long term, right along beside. Three year build a relationship and hope that eventually Saul wants to change. I mean, the grace of God said, Saul, it is time to look yourself in the mirror and get honest about who you are. You are fighting against the living God. That's grace. I'm going to tell you something, folks. There are people right now, You know the sound of my voice, you hear me say what I just said, and it doesn't resonate with your view of what grace is. But it is grace. Undeserved, unmerited favor of God. And here's why. We won't change until we are confronted with what we need to change. And we've been duped into believing that grace It's not confrontational at all. If you're going to be gracious, you're just going to say, oh, don't worry about your sin, brother. We all got sins. That's yours. That's hers. Well, I've got mine. You don't want to hear about mine. We're all sinners. No need to talk about it. Welcome to the devil's definition of grace. Because God's grace is as confrontational as they come. I think about in my own life, the day that I got saved, I had a similar experience um, that we read about here in that it was terrifying to me. In the moment that I realized God was real, I also simultaneously realized that was trouble for me. I was a sinner, guilty before a holy God, and I couldn't fix anything that I'd done. It was too late. I'd already done it. And There was nothing I could do to fix it, and I literally shook, like I trembled at the thought of God's real and I'm guilty. And I came to -to face-to-face with the honest truth that I was an evil, wicked sinner who would stand before a holy God, and it caused me to tremble. You know what else it caused me to want to do? Change. I didn't want to be that man anymore. I didn't want to be guilty before God anymore. I had a horrible problem on my hands. I was guilty before God. And it started the process of motivating me to want to change. Now, this is important for two reasons or for two people. First of all, to the sinner. Or maybe even the Christian that the Holy Ghost has been dealing with you about some stuff in your life that needs to change. Here's what you need to understand. It is the grace of God that confronts us. It is actually the goodness of God that confronts us. We're about to find out God didn't just confront Paul to make him feel bad. God didn't just confront Paul to teach him a lesson and then leave him there. There's something else that's coming that grace is all about. But it starts with being confronted. Now, here's why that's important for the sinner. The Holy Spirit will deal with your your soul. You will find yourself dealing with conviction, and you know, like, I am wrong before God. I need to change. You need to understand that is the goodness of God leading you to repentance. And so don't run away from it. Don't think, oh, I'm such a terrible person. God wants me to feel ashamed. God does not want you to feel ashamed, but he wants you to come to the true reality that you are a sinner in need of a Savior and that you must turn, you must change, you must quit living the same wicked life. Now, this is also important for the Christian. Because, as I've already said, if you've been duped into thinking that grace is non confrontational, it's weak, and, you know, it just means anybody gets to live the way anyway they all ought to do. And my goal as a Christian is just to try to get people to trust that, you know, that, hey, Jesus' grace is sufficient, so don't worry about change. Don't worry about sin in your life. No need to worry about those things, man. Just focus on grace. Here's what you need to know that's garbage, number one. And number two, if you really want to be gracious, and you want to help people come to a transformational life in Jesus Christ, there will be times that the Holy Spirit will lead you to be confrontational. And I'm not talking being rude. I'm not talking trying to make somebody feel small. But trust me, as you all know, you're sitting there and you feel it. 70% of what I've said in the last 15 minutes is confrontational. I'm not trying to be confrontational. I'm not trying to hurt people. I'm not trying to make people feel bad. But but when you speak the truth in and of itself, the word of God, what it says, it's confrontational. And so if I'm actually going to be gracious and I want to help rescue somebody and I want to see the lost saved and I want to see people that are bound up in chains delivered, there will be times if I'm going to be honest and I'm going to be gracious I have no choice but to say what is true because there will be no change until we deal with what is true. So number one, grace will confront you. Number two, grace will transform you. So God does not confront you to leave you where you're at. God's grace also changes you. Paul was changed in a moment. Look what Ephesians 2, verses 8 through 10, tell us. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. But look at verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. I want to read that two more times. Created in Christ Jesus for good works, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So you were saved and created for good works. God transforms us that we might live out His will for our lives. Grace does not just confront you and then leave you there. That was never the point. Jesus didn't confront Paul, you're persecuting me, and then just leave him there. Like, grace transformed him, but you will find real transformation. And I pray the Holy Spirit will give us some revelation of this this morning. This is one of the reasons that we see so little transformation in the house of God anymore. There's no confrontation. People don't even know they need to be transformed. But when grace truly confronts us and we're willing to deal honestly with ourselves and look ourselves in the mirror and be honest about who we are and allow the Holy Spirit to convict us of the things in our lives that need change, then follows transformation and the grace of God. It does change us. This is what Spurgeon was arguing when he said, It's nonsense to believe that God's grace could save your soul from hell, but somehow it's not possible that it changes you as a human being. When you study grace in the word of God and you look at the people that God's grace touched, there is not one single character in the whole Bible whose life didn't change after they came in contact with God's grace. Not one. We will see stories of characters that still struggled with sin. So do not misunderstand me. I'm not saying that when God's grace transforms you, you will be sinless. It's not that Paul never sinned after he got saved, but it was obvious he was a radically different man. It's not that the apostle Peter never sinned after he got saved, but it was clear to him, his wife, his family, the community, the whole world, that that man has been radically changed. It's not that I have never sinned since I got saved 22 years ago, but it is obvious that when God's grace touched me 22 years ago, it radically changed the way that I lived. And so grace It transforms you. It does not leave you the way that you are. Again, this is important for two groups of people. Number one, it's important for the sinner. You know, if you don't understand this about God's grace, you'll think to yourself, well, I could never be a Christian. Too hard to be a Christian. Well, honestly, that is true. It's impossible to be a Christian until you understand the grace of God that gives us the strength to be what God's called us to be. But I remember thinking to myself, like, I just could never be a Christian. I didn't even believe in God, so I didn't have a great interest in it. But I thought to myself, like, who would want to do that? It's just a bunch of do's and don'ts. And so you think to yourself, like, you, you might think, you know, I know I want to be right with God. I don't want to go to hell. Nobody wants to do that. I'd like to go to heaven if I can. But the truth is. I don't want to quit this. I don't want to quit this. I don't want to quit this. I don't want to stop this. I sort of feel like, you know, Christianity is just this list of don'ts. And the things you're supposed to do, right? Like be forgiving, you know, I don't think I can do that. Love my enemies. I don't think I can do that. You know, don't forsake the assembling of the saints. Like I'm supposed to be in church. I don't really like church. I I just I I don't I don't want to do the things that supposedly Christians are supposed to do. And you think to yourself, I would become a Christian, maybe I will become one someday, when I'm convinced that I will want to be one, that I will want to do the things Christians should do, when I no longer want to do the wrong things that I know are wrong in my life. That day will never come. Your flesh nature, your evil nature, will never line up with the things of God. But here's the reality you can never know what it's really going to be like till you're born again. Because what I thought Christianity was going to be, turns out this guy was blind and I didn't have a clue what I was talking about. I remember thinking, I just never want to do what the Christians do. And then when I truly got saved and grace transformed me, it was, it was wild. It was like all the things I once used to love, I hated them all of a sudden. I'm like, I don't even understand how I thought that was fun. I mean, I literally had that thought. Most of you know my story. One of the things I used to do all the time was drugs. And after I got saved, I honestly, true true, hand before you and the Lord, I had this thought. Why did I like that? That was so stupid. Like, I can't understand why I thought the way I thought. I can't even relate to it anymore. What kind of idiot would find enjoyment in what I found enjoyment? It, It was like all of a sudden, I had a new nature. It was like all of the sudden, I had been born again. It was as if I was a new creation in Christ. And all the things that I used to think would be so boring. That's what I thought about church, folks. I thought church, like real Christianity, had to be the most boring thing on earth. Like rule number one, thou shalt have no fun. Thou shalt not go ever anywhere and have an enjoyable time. Thou shalt not smile. Like I'm, like, I'm like, who wants to do that, man? Not me. By the way, the devil's a liar. Because true, authentic Christianity, that ain't what it is, folks. But I didn't know. And I remember I got saved, and I got, I got saved in a church with, like, 600 people. And honestly, the average age was, like, 60 to 65. Uh, I was one of, like, three people in their 20s in a church of 600. And I'll never forget, I didn't matter to me. All I wanted to do was be in church. Like, I wanted to be in church Sunday morning. I wanted to be in church Sunday night. I wanted to be at church on Wednesday. I couldn't wait for it. Like, I just hungered for it. And there was a prayer meeting that was happening on Tuesdays, 6.30 p.m., and there's like 20-some, 25 people that were at this prayer meeting, And I don't think there was one single person there under the age of 60 besides me. I didn't care. 40 age, the 40 year age gap, it meant nothing to me. I just wanted to be around people that were praying. How did this happen? Grace, the unmerited favor of God, transformed my heart and gave me a new nature. And I'm going to tell you something, when you really study the Word of God, if you'll go to here, you'll quit listening to the garbage that's peddled out of many pulpits, out of the garbage that's peddled coming out of American Christian radio, and you will actually go to the Word of God alone, you will find that in this book, when grace touches people, it changes them. It gives them a new nature in Reality, Not just in theory, but in reality. So grace will confront you. Grace will transform you. You were created for good works. Number three, notice that grace will also direct you. In Acts chapter 9, here's what we are told in verse 6. Jesus told Paul, but rise and enter the city, and you will be told what to do. This this reminds me all the way back to Abraham when God told Abraham to get up and go into a land, and I quote, I will show you. Just start moving, son. The further your feet go, eventually as you keep walking, you will come upon what I will show you later. Here's what the Holy Spirit told Paul. Or Jesus told Paul, excuse me, get up and go to the city and there I will show you what to do. Now keep in mind, right, let's, let's try to enter into the story of Paul's life right here. Keep in mind, everybody in Damascus knows that Paul is coming to arrest them. I don't know about you, but if it was me and I had just lost my sight from this blinding light I would want to do one of two things. Either one, just wait until see if my sight come back. Or two, I would want to retreat to the place of safety around my peers where I knew I had protection. I'd want some time to process what just happened. But instead, God tells Paul, get up blind and be led by the hand into the same city that you were on your way to, to go persecute. And when you get there, I'll tell you what to do. That takes trust. I'm going to tell you something, brothers and sisters. God's grace always directs us. This is the theme that you will see throughout all of Scripture. The heavens have never opened up the rain Let alone the idea of so much water falling from the sky that the whole earth would be flooded. And God says, no, I need you to build a boat. Hundreds of years of building. No rain. Years of people saying, you have lost your mind, man. Tell us the story again. Rain's going to fall from the sky. Okay. Okay. God telling Abraham to get up and go into a land that he'd eventually show him. You know, the Word of God itself tells us that the Word of God is like that. In the book of Psalms, it tells us in chapter 119 that the Word of God, listen to this terminology, that the Word of God is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Now, just meditate on that with me for a second. Consider what God's Word is actually telling us. God's Word is like a lamp to my feet. In other words, it will show me where I need to step next. And as I follow that light, then I can see what the next step is. The light to the path, it shows me where I need to go It shows me the direction in which I need to head, but it does not show me everything that lies ahead of me. In order for me to know what lies ahead, what do I have to do? I've got to go down the path a little bit further. In God's grace, it directs the Apostle Paul and says, I want you to go there, to Damascus. And so many Christians are stuck spiritually Because you refuse to do what God has clearly told you to do, and you know it. God has said, you need to change this thing in your life. You need to repent in this area. You need to go here spiritually in your life. And we're like, no, I'm not going to go, God. And many of us are like, well, God, I would go if you just tell me before I get there. Like, what's going to happen? And then when I get there and that happens, so what happens next? And then what happens next? And God, if you just clearly show me everything on how it's going to work and I can see from where I'm at to where it's going to get, then I will go. First of all, that's not the way that it works. God does not have to show you everything about the way. And number two, you probably wouldn't go. You remember when Saul, excuse me, Samuel, remember when Saul sinned against God, King Saul, and God tells Samuel, I've rejected this king. It's time for another. Go to uh, this house, and I'm going to show you the new king. You remember when David was anointed king? Samuel pours out the oil on David's head. And like David is this young teenage boy gets the revelation that right here is where you are right now, boy. But one day, you're going to be the king of Israel. Can you imagine if like in that exact same moment, Samuel's like, I've got a word from God. You're the one human that gets to know the whole way from here to there. So in a little bit, you're going to kill Goliath. It's going to be awesome. I mean, they're going to write songs about you, man. And then your master's going to go crazy He's going to get psychotic. He's going to try to kill you twice with a spear. You are going to escape. Don't worry. But it's going to be real evident that if you don't run for your life, you're going to die. And so you're going to have to live like a dog for a while, running for your life out in the woods. If I'm David, if you're David, I'm like, eh, I don't know about that king thing anymore. Or maybe we misunderstand it. If God shows us all the heartache along the way, we actually misunderstand it. And we think God's giving us a warning sign, don't go. The grace of God will direct you. God's grace will show you in your life where you need to go next. I'm going to tell you something. You will stay right where you're at, and you will be stuck right where you're at if you don't move your feet and follow what God's told you to do. That's the way that it works. And if you're a Christian and you find yourself stuck, all I can do this morning is plead with you, Take the next step in your life that you know God's calling you to do. Stop making excuses for staying stationary. You've got to trust God that no matter what, as long as you're faithful to the things of God and you allow the word of God to lead you, you allow the word of God to illuminate the path that you're walking on and you follow what God's word is leading you to do, you're just going to have to trust God that, Lord, as along this journey, you're going to be with me, you're not going to forsake me, and I'm going to keep moving forward no matter what that means. God's grace will direct you. Consider that when Paul went to Damascus, it was there and there only that God would open his eyes again. Paul was not blinded for life. The Bible says something like scales, like something physical fell off of his eyes and he was able to see whatever God had done to him in that moment. to to force him to live in this three days of just darkness and and trust and, and being led by the hand. Eventually those scales would fall and Paul would be able to see again. But where did that happen in the place that God told him to go? It was there in Damascus that Paul would be introduced to the family of God. I've preached before an entire sermon on this one point. Consider the truth, right? So Paul is blind. He's in Damascus. Everybody there, the Christians know that he's coming to to, uh, arrest them. He's been told to go anyways. They don't know the story. God gives Ananias a vision so that Ananias would be willing to approach Paul. But Paul doesn't really know exactly what's going on. God has spoke to Paul and said, somebody named Ananias is going to come and you're going to be able to see But he doesn't know what's going to happen after that. He doesn't know what they're going to do to him. I want you to put yourself in Paul's shoes. That fast being struck blind for three days. What do you think he thought about for three days? If it was me, if it was Joplin Emerson, I would just be thinking about how wrong I had been for the last several years of my life. One of the things that would probably play over and, over and over in Paul's mind was him standing there at the death of Stephen. Having orchestrated that event, sitting there like a smug gangster, holding the coats of these men as they murdered an innocent Christian who had done nothing wrong. I mean, if I was Paul, I'd be thinking about that over and over and over again. I really would. I'd be overwhelmed at the same time that God would meet me. Like, why didn't he strike me dead? I'd wonder what all this meant. And wouldn't you wonder how the church was going to treat you? Now go and consider the first word that Paul heard. The Bible says the first word that he heard from Ananias was this, brother. That is such a powerful word powerful statement. That fast, he was the family of God, and God wanted to make sure that he knew it. You know one of the things that separates the gospel from everything else? Imagine the truth of this. When Paul entered heaven, it was to the applause of those whom he had martyred. That's amazing. That is so awesome. That is the power of the gospel. That is the power of grace. And God's grace will direct you, my friend. You must trust where God's grace is leading. And number four this morning, notice that God's grace will complete you. So Paul became the great apostle Paul. He never called himself that, but we often call him that. He started many churches. And in the later years of his life, while he was imprisoned, he would write letters and have them sent to these churches to encourage them. Sometimes he'd hear something that was going on and he would want to address it. And so he'd write a letter and have it sent to the churches. You might not know this, but most of, like, the, we call them the New Testament epistles Romans, Ephesians, Galatians, Colossians. First and Second Corinthians, first and Second Thessalonians, these were letters that Paul wrote back to these churches that had been started. And in the later years of his life, Paul said this in writing the Corinthians. We'll find it in 1 uh, Corinthians 15 verses 9 through 11. He said, "For I am, not I was, I am the least of the apostles." unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. Paul says even at the end of his life, it is today, 40 years in, it's not that I was what I was by the grace of God, I still am what I am by the grace of God. It wasn't just God's grace that transformed me 40 years ago. It wasn't just God's grace that that confronted me 40 years ago. It is God's grace now, today, that still makes me what I am, and it still confronts me when I need confronted, and it's still transforming me into the man of God that God wants me to be. I am what I am, not by anything that I've done, but by the unmerited, undeserved favor of God in my life. I am what I am. Philippians 1.6 says that we are confident of this very thing. That he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. God's grace not only starts the work, but God's grace finishes it as well. The Bible says that Jesus is the author and finisher of our faith. He's the one that starts it and he's the one that finishes it. Hebrews 12, 2 says, we looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. The pressure is not on you, it's not on me. We need to rest and we need to relax because if God calls us to it, he will give us the grace to get through it. Jesus made a statement that It's hard to understand, maybe impossible to understand, outside of grace. Jesus spoke about the things that he calls us to, being led by him. He said that it's easy. He said that his burden is light. I don't know about you, but there's been times I've thought, well, that's not true. It's not easy to be a Christian. It's hard to be a Christian. Let's look at what he said here. He said in uh, Matthew 11, verses 28 through 30, he said, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I literally struggled with that verse for a handful of years. I thought it's not easy to be Christian. But when you realize that what He's called us to do isn't easy, but He has given us the grace and the strength and the power to do it, it becomes easy when I understand He's the one that actually gives me the strength to do it. In other words, He hasn't called me to do anything, no matter how hard it is, that He's not gonna be with me through it. And He's gonna give strength. And His grace is sufficient even through my weakness. And so the reason it's easy is not because it's easy. The reason it's easy is because His grace supplies the strength to make it easy. You try to do it in and of your own strength. You try to serve God and truly follow Jesus in your own strength, it is exhausting. It seems impossible. And it really is. It's impossible in your own strength. But when you realize he hasn't just called you to it and then left you on your own to figure it out. He's given us the Holy Spirit to indwell in every single one of his children. To guide us, to lead us, to direct us, to empower us. He's given us His grace to transform us. I remember thinking it'd be so hard to want to be a Christian. Well, once the Holy Spirit really took over in my life, it wasn't hard at all. It was easy. I, I wanted to be. I wanted to show up at church. I wanted to read the Bible. I wanted to pray. This morning, we'd ask our worship team if you guys would come and get in place. And I want to share a statement. From Corey Tinboom, survivor of the Holocaust. She said this trying to do the Lord's work in your own strength is the most confusing, exhausting, and tedious of all work. Isn't that true? But when you're filled with the Holy Spirit, then the ministry of Jesus just flows out of you. It's the way it works. When we allow the Holy Spirit to fill us and lead us and guide us and direct us, we see that God gives us the grace that we need to do everything that He's called us to do. We see that even after 40, 50 years of serving God, we still need the grace of God. I need the grace of God in my life today just like I needed the grace of God in my life the day that I got saved. It's the unmerited, undeserved favor of God for no other reason than He loves us. But understand this. The grace of God, brothers and sisters, it's not this soft, weak, passive thing. It comes to where we are and knocks us off of our horse. It's the grace of God because God loves us too much to leave us where we are. It's the grace of God that causes us to get honest with ourselves and look ourselves in the mirror and be true with ourselves about who we really are before God. And it's the grace of God that gives us the power to change those things. God doesn't just show us these things to shame us, He's going to transform us and change us. God's grace will lead us. It'll show us where we need to go. Thank God. God's grace isn't some one-time event at salvation, but it's something that follows us through. And if by the grace of God, like the Apostle Paul, we can live a solid 30 or 40 years after we've been saved, may at the end of our lives we be able to say the same thing I still am what I am by the grace of God it's the grace of God